In Genesis chapter 4, we have the story of the first two persons born into this world, into a fallen world. We are told of their birth, their worship, and the murder of one of them by the other, and the judgment and curse on the one who committed murder. It is interesting if you read this passage, the first 16 verses of the chapter. We have no record of God talking to Abel, whom we might call the good son. Instead, it is with Cain that God has at least two conversations. The first coming after they have presented their gifts of worship to God. Verse number six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The second conversation comes after Cain has murdered his brother Abel. It is a shocking event, an event without precedent. Unlike today, when you can watch any number of murders, either real or fictional, on TV or read about them, Cain had no pattern to follow, no example to imitate. And yet, he killed his brother. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. I've mentioned this before, but I would just have you take note that the notion of being a wanderer, a restless wanderer, is seen as a curse. It's something we don't like to talk about in a very mobile society in this country. Um, but there is something to be said for being or staying in one particular place. In both conversations, you will note that God begins with several questions, questions to which he very well knows the answer. But he seeks to draw out the truth from Cain. We will come back to the story of Cain as we go along today. We have been looking at the matter of happiness. This is our sixth Sunday, looking at it. It's, I must confess, far more than I anticipated. I thought it would be helpful for us to sort of take a break and sort of go over what we have seen thus far, the major points of our study so far. We began by seeing how that in the modern world, and now the postmodern world, truth, reading, goodness, and even happiness have been redefined. The result is a series of gaps. So there's a gap between truth and knowing. There's a gap between truth and goodness. And what we've been looking at is the gap between goodness and happiness. As a result, as one author put it, happiness unlinked from goodness and linked to excitement instead has moved to fill the space. That is the gap between goodness and happiness. And so now we are not always convinced that we can be happy and good at the same time. It seems to be an either-or choice. With regard to happiness, we saw, as Augustine put it, it is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all people desire to be happy. It is, in fact, a universal quest. But if we go a step beyond that, and we did as we began this series, we could argue that it is an American quest, that Americans, which we are in particular, have a desire to be happy. It is there in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this idea, this theme, has made its way into our vocabulary, into our consciousness, and into our lifestyles, that it's about being happy. 
Well, being American Christians, we get a little bit nervous about that. And so we have a tendency to postpone everything to say, no, 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 you're not supposed to be happy now. That happens when we get to heaven. Um, that, as one person put it, that, that a Christian is someone who is suspicious that somebody somewhere is being happy, and they're not happy about that. Um, the reality is God wants us to be happy now. The beatitude, the bountiful life and joy indeed, is a deep and meaningful notion of the happy life, and it is at the heart of the Christian faith. What is happiness? It's been several weeks, so let me remind you of the definition we used. It is the condition of genuine human fulfillment and flourishing, rooted in a relationship with God whose mercy and grace was demonstrated in Jesus. We use the paradigm of creation, fall, and redemption. We start with creation. What was it that God intended when he first made man? And we found that what God intended was for man to be happy. That's why he constructed Eden, a garden of delight. No wonder it is called paradise. We find a setting for the truly happy life. And then we moved on to the fall, but before we did so, we noted that, in fact, creation still is good. Even though it is fallen, it is still good, and it is still a place where God provides, where he gives us provision for our happiness. And so David could write, in a fallen world, Taste and see that the Lord is good in the context of God's creation. If God is a proper reference point for all aspects and things in life, then God gives them their true meaning and puts them in a proper order in our lives. The union of God, ourselves, and the entire cosmos in rightly ordered love makes up happiness. But we don't live in a perfect world, we live in a fallen world, in a broken world. And as a result of our rebellion and God's judgment, we have forgotten oftentimes that this is our Father's world. It's a hymn that we sang. That it is God's creation. We have forgotten also that it is good. And no longer do we seek to love God in all things or to love all things in God. And yet at the same time, there is this thing niggling at the back of our brains that we want to be happy. Augustine, again, quoting him from the City of God, For certainly by sinning we lost both piety and happiness. But when we lost happiness, we did not lose the love of it. We still want to be happy. But love is, in fact, the issue, as we've seen in this series. One of the most devastating effects of the fall was not simply being exiled from the presence of God, though that is devastating, But it is that now we think we can be happy, we can find happiness apart from God. To be more specific, we believe that, in fact, happiness resides in our love for other persons or other things. The result is we have what we've been calling disordered love, which has led to disordered lives. The problem is that we do not love what we should or how we should. And in fact, we love the things that we should not. The blindness of our hearts has caused this. Because on our own, we don't know who God is. We are confused about the nature and origin of creation. We don't know who we are. We don't know why we are here. We don't know what's gone wrong with the world and what the solution is. 
and we don't know what to love or how to love. We spent several Sundays looking at the seven deadly sins. That these, in fact, point to the fact that our love, our loves, are really messed up, are disordered. As human beings made in the image of God, God who is love, it is our nature to love. It's the part of God, it is the image of God that we bear. Um, This is who we are. Let me just spend a few moments here. Uh, James K. Smith has written about this in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, Worship, Worldview, and Cultural Formation. And he asks the question, and he is a college professor of philosophy, what if education wasn't first and foremost about what we know, but about what we love? You see, Christian discipleship, and actually human life, should not be seen in terms merely of knowledge of what you know, but of your desires. Many philosophers tend to see human beings, and Christian philosophers as well, as we bear the image of God because we have the capacity for thought. That is what makes us human. Smith argues that that is not the case. What makes us human is that we love. We are made in the image of he who is love. So the answer is not stop loving. It's like we love the wrong thing, so stop loving. No, it is to recognize the wrong things that we love and then to change that. The seven deadly sins to remind you are pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. Pride, envy, and anger flow from the obsession with the self. I believe this is what we see in Cain. Greed, gluttony, and lust from an excessive love for things. In the end, rather than loving God, we either love ourselves or we love other things. And the result is that fourth sin, sloth, there is a deficiency in our love for God. In the story of Cain, we see, I believe, a man who is obsessed with himself. And therefore, it results in anger, which flows, in my opinion, from his pride and his envy. Why was his offering not accepted? Why was his brother's offering accepted? He became angry, and this led him to kill his brother. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Why was he angry? This is what God asks him. It was his disordered love of self that led him to murder his brother. In our disordered loves, I believe they have led us to try and find happiness apart from God. The result being, as we saw in John chapter 11, in the raising of Lazarus, that there is a stench about humanity. As the King James puts it, he stinketh. Because we have sought to love apart from God. We've sought to be happy apart from God. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus came into the world to redeem all things, including our loves and our happiness. It begins with reordering our loves. Jesus has told us from the law that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the greatest commandment, as we've seen, Jesus tells us what we are to love, the Lord our God, how we are to love completely and unconditionally, and why we are to love. And as we saw, this is by implication. It is because it is the very best thing for us. It is our chief good. It is not because God needs our love. It is for us. 
Then the question came up, how do I know if I'm really loving God? Is there any tangible way for me to measure my affection for him? And there is, as we saw in John 14. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. God's commands help shape us and the human community for lives of goodness and happiness. And here we see God and man working as a team, with God leading and humanity following in obedience. We saw this last week, that the community is given commands, commandments that are to regulate our moral life, our social life, our religious life, our economic life. These commands are not simply rules, but they are in fact intended to shape, they are to cultivate within us a sense of moral and spiritual wisdom. That this, oh, this is what I was made for. This is how God wants me to live. God gave Israel commandments to guide them and direct them to live as he intends. And if we accept that God's intent in creation was for those made in his image, human beings, to be happy, to realize and embrace him as their chief good, then the giving of his laws, his commandments to his people, has the same purpose, the same intent, for them to be happy, to enjoy God, creation, and self. By cultivating the wisdom behind the divine commands that enabled one to become an instrument of the world's flourishing, Simply put, happiness is a discipline that one might call godly self-enjoyment. We looked at this last week, that even in the commandments that we'll call the negative ones, if you wish, the shall nots, we see that God is seeking to teach us respect and self-restraint. So we are to have a respect for human life. We're not to commit murder. We are to have a respect for the sanctity of marriage. We are not to be unfaithful. We are not to commit adultery. We are to have a respect for property rights. We are not to steal from one another. We are to have respect for integrity. We are not to lie. We are not to bear false witness. And we are to have a respect for one another and what belongs to one another we are not supposed to covet. Delaying gratification is essential for both healthy individuals and community. And as I was thinking through the sermon, I'd already written out my notes, I realized that last week I put more emphasis on it than I do in my notes here, that this isn't simply about the individual, it's about the community. We shouldn't simply be thinking about ourselves, but that obedience is not only important for me to be happy, but for the community as well. And we use the example of adultery, which uh, we find in Proverbs, that it not only destroys the adulterer, but it also affects, it destroys his marriage and his children and his parents, his neighborhood and his community. So it isn't just about me, but it is about the people that live around me. In obeying God's commandments, we learn by doing. We learn by practice, by developing habits, how to love God and how to love our neighbor. I've mentioned several times in the series, and I've mentioned a few moments ago, the incident recorded in Mark 12, also in Matthew 22 and Luke. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. We heard this from Paul in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. The entire law is summed up in a single commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. One might think upon reading this that the teacher of the law actually got more than he bargained for, sort of a two-for-one deal. He was asking what is the greatest commandment, and in fact he is told that there are two, that you are to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. In reality, a triple duty is put on us in these two commands. We are to love God, we are to love our neighbor, we are to love ourselves. Now technically we are not commanded to love ourselves. It simply presupposes that we do so. Because if we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, then I think we need to know how to love ourselves in a right way, in an ordered way, not disordered way. To learn how to do this, to know how to do this, at least three things must be taken into account. First of all, it is valid for Christians to love themselves. And I know for some of us this makes us really nervous, but bear with me. Secondly, love for self can, in fact, and in most cases, is disordered, has been twisted. And thirdly, we will look at what proper love for self looks like. It seems that people tend to remember certain parts of the Bible more than others. And so phrases like deny yourself, love, or lose your life, or take up your cross, uh, this is what people tend to remember about the Christian faith. And it gives the impression that Christianity loves, loves self-abhorrence and abhors a self-love. In other words, we just really do not like the idea of loving ourselves. But if this is the case, then the Christian faith is a faith for masochists. In truth, this is not the case. Loving ourselves and our happiness are as natural and acceptable as breathing. If you think about it, it is human nature to satisfy ordinary human needs. If I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm thirsty, I drink. If I am tired, I sleep. If I'm clueless, I seek knowledge. If I am poor, I work to get money. If I'm lonely, I find friends. If I'm sick, I go to the doctor. Immediately, I have in my notes in parenthesis, I realize that this is an idealized view. Uh, we may not do as we should, but it is a natural thing to do, to in fact seek to remedy these situations. So generally speaking, there is no need to command us to love ourselves. We, we pretty much do it. It is not only natural, it is biblical. The Bible teaches us that we are to love God the Creator and we are to love His creation. And since we are a part of His creation, one could argue by extension, we are to love ourselves. It is in the second commandment, though, that Jesus gives that we see the divine pattern. I am to love my neighbor. How am I supposed to do that? As I love myself. And therefore, it is only right and proper that I love myself, because otherwise, how would I know how I am to love my neighbor? David Noggle, who has written on this, says, We love ourselves for our own sake, and we love ourselves for our neighbor's sake. And we love both ourselves and our neighbor in God for God's sake. In loving God first and foremost, we know how to love ourselves. And in knowing how to love ourselves, we know how to love our neighbor. Not more or less than ourselves, but equally so. 
There is a single form of love distributed in three appropriate ways. Could this be a trace of our creation in the image of Trinity? The fact is we live in a fallen world and self-love easily slips into disorder. Self-love is disordered when we love ourselves too much compared to the way we love God, when we love God more or when we love ourselves more than we love God. It is disordered when others get less love or more love than we have for ourselves or when they get none at all. It is disordered when it is all about us. Let's be more personal when it's all about me. It is disordered love when we try to gain the whole world or any portion thereof. We end up losing ourselves. Our self-centeredness generally results in idolatry, any one of this or more of the seven deadly sins, habits, addictions, some cases even violence, as we saw in the case of Cain. It's not just physical violence, by the way. You may remember that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. Cain was angry and it led him to violence. Self-love is good when it is in harmony with our love for God. Otherwise, we are headed for disaster. Nagel writes, and initially quoting from Augustine, Ironically, then, we must learn to love ourselves by not loving ourselves. We must seek happiness by not seeking our happiness. We must save ourselves by condemning ourselves. We must find it all by losing it all. This is why Jesus made demands of his would-be followers that seem exceedingly harsh at first glance. And let me read to you some passages that may be familiar. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's from Matthew 10, from Luke 14. In the same way, any one of you or any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And then also in Luke 14, repeating what we hear in Matthew 10, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In Mark 8, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Finally, in John 12, the man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Part of us feels more comfortable now. This is more of what we're used to, the notion that we are to hate ourselves in order to gain heaven. In fact, the call of Jesus to hate self and family members is not because there's something wrong with them or that they are evil. After all, they are God's creation. But rather, it is call for a hatred of disordered or misplaced love. That we love ourselves or our family more than we love God. That our love for self or love for family has blocked us from loving God as we should. And if we do not love God, then we cannot discover true happiness. The demand that we give up our possessions is not because there's anything wrong with having possessions. 
Rather, it is a call to be careful because of the competition that they pose to our affection, our love for God. The requirement that we deny ourselves and take up our crosses is not because we are worthless. Rather, it is directed at the elimination of sin and selfishness that keeps us from discovering the love of God and how to be happy in him. In these hard sayings, and they are difficult sayings, we see that God wants to get rid of our disordered loves. We love, but we're loving in an incorrect way. Either ourselves, others, or our possessions. That in getting rid of these disordered loves, we might first learn to love him completely and unconditionally. And then we can turn around and learn to love these things in him. We love ourselves correctly when we love God more than we love ourselves. When he is our chief good. When we refer all our plans and aim everything in our lives to him. In a real sense, we do not love ourselves or anyone or anything else if we don't love God. If we don't love God, we don't really love ourselves or anyone or anything else. Appearances to the contrary notwithstanding. Loving ourselves in God is the greatest gift we can give and the best service that we can offer to ourselves. So we can draw the following conclusions. You only love yourself when God is your greatest good and when you love God the most. Only when God is your greatest good and you love God the most will you truly love yourself. And only when you love yourself as you should in God will you be able to love your neighbor in God as you love yourself. So we are to love God. We are to love ourselves. We are to love our neighbor. The second commandment. Let's recognize as we begin this part of the discussion that apart from grace, sin has killed any genuine concern we might have for other people. Pride, envy, anger, lust, greed rarely have spared any soul. Our habits and our addictions cause much pain to those nearest and dearest to us. And perhaps even violence is seen as an option, as we saw in the case of Cain. Apart from God's grace, we are not reluctant to use and abuse people as a means to our imagined happiness. But thanks to the good news that is found in Jesus, our love for others can in fact be reordered, just as our love for God and our love for self. It's a package deal. In loving God, we love our neighbors. And in loving our neighbors, we love God. Jesus said that the first command, or the second commandment is like the first. So where do we start in this matter about loving our neighbors? The beginning is always a good place. We, should, we are told that human beings are made in the image of God. And therefore, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves because they, like us, bear the image and likeness of God. It is, in fact, at least a part of the rationale for loving them, that they are made in God's image. And this is not an insignificant thing, because it is given its supreme expression in the Incarnation. When Jesus came into the world, God in the flesh. And Jesus, in his being here, in his living here, and in his dying here, verified the exalted status of humanity. In his teachings, we hear this. He tells us we are, after all, worth more than many sparrows. 
and the hairs of our head are numbered. God knows all about us. In his ministry, we see that Jesus touches people. He saves them. He heals them. He pronounces forgiveness and does what we would call miracles of mercy. In his crucifixion, we see that, in fact, human life has value. His death is a gift of God's only son. But let's be practical. How should we love our neighbors in practical ways that meet their needs in such a way that they might find their greatest good in God? How should we love them that they may learn what it means to be happy, to be happy in the Creator? The New Testament has much to say about this, if we would listen. In Matthew chapter 7, the last, sermon, or the last chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, verse number 12, So in everything do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The fact that we share a common humanity with our neighbors should in fact impel us to love them as we love ourselves and to do to them what we would have them do to us. This is popularly known as the golden rule. Unfortunately, the golden rule oftentimes has no connection. It is not tethered or anchored in the notion that we are to love the Lord our God completely and unconditionally. That is where we must begin. And from there, we are to love ourselves. And then from there, we are to love our neighbors. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, which was triggered by the question, what is the greatest commandment? Who is my neighbor? These questions and what you would have others do to you are answered in this parable, the example of the Good Samaritan. And at the end, we hear Jesus saying, go and do likewise. Go do the same thing. We also learn about loving our neighbor when we hear Jesus speaking of a new commandment. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you, that you are my disciples if you love one another. Thus, we learn about loving our neighbors, that we are to love them as ourselves, that we are to treat them as we would have them treat us. And we are to love others as Jesus has loved us. This is what is new about this commandment. Uh, people have asked me this several times. This doesn't sound like a new commandment. It sounds like the old one just sort of rehashed. No, this is in fact something new in that Jesus says, this is how you love your neighbors, the way that I have loved you. We heard this in Galatians 2.20. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus demonstrated his love for us in humble service and in selfless sacrifice. Things which do not come naturally to us. Unless, again, I think we have sort of a masochistic streak that we like sort of being abused. We naturally want to be great. We want to be served. We want to be in control. But these are manifestations of messed up, of disordered self-love. Jesus offered a different model. This is how you are to love your neighbor. This is how you are to love yourself. And when two of his disciples were bickering about, okay... When Jesus takes over, we get into the kingdom. Uh, I want to be at the right and you can be at the left. And they started fighting about this. And Jesus explained to them how they were wrong and used himself as the example. 
Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great, become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That's the paradigm. This is how you're supposed to live. And now, here is the example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus gave this commandment, this new commandment, to love as I have loved you. And he did so in the context of washing his disciples' feet. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The next time you're reading through the New Testament, a profitable study would be for you to mark out every time you read the phrase, one another. In these, we learn the nature of selfless, humble service that we are to offer others in love. You will note that they are put in the imperative form. We are commanded to do them. I will just read you a partial list. Be devoted to one another. Be like-minded with one another. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Show patience with one another. Speak the truth to one another. Encourage one another. And the list goes on. As Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And these are just the positive commands. We have equally negative commands of how we are not to treat one another. Stop and think a minute that the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to that God commands of us, this love of neighbor, is not simply to be applied to family and friends, but also to enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your, enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We are to love our enemies. But we should understand that this generosity toward them is because we have experienced exactly the same generosity from Romans 5. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The example is there for us to follow. Now, it may seem to go without saying, but we'll, we perhaps need to hear it said anyway, that love is to be expressed not simply in words, but in our actions, which we heard in James 2. 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith without, uh, same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In the last parable that Matthew records of Jesus' public ministry, Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, judgment and reward are based on how one ministered in Jesus, in Christ, to those who were in need of such practical love and help. Those who were hungry or thirsty, those who were strangers, those who needed clothing or who were in prison. Apart from the grace of God, as revealed in Jesus, we would be just like Cain. Proud, envious, angry, and even violent, if not indeed, certainly in thought and word. It is by the grace that has been revealed in Jesus, in word and example, that we learn that we are to love the Lord our God, that we are to love ourselves, and we are to love our neighbors in God. Seems simple enough. I would argue that, again, apart from the grace of God, it's not going to happen. What passes for self-love in our culture is, in fact, disordered love. It's corrupted love. And true self-love can only be found in Christ. There's one more thing that the Lord willing we will look at next week. We are to love God's creation. I think this is one thing that God's people have lacked for some time now. We have failed to appreciate the goodness of God's creation and the connection between goodness and happiness and between happiness and love. Therefore, we are to love what God has created. Let's pray together. Our Father, if we were to be asked if we love ourselves, I think we would safely assume that we, well, well, we think that we do. But in fact, what passes for self-love is most often disordered love in which we become the center of all things. Or perhaps if we have a negative view of ourselves, we love others more. We don't love our neighbors ourselves. Help us to see that our love is to begin with you We are to love you completely and unconditionally. And from that, by your grace, we have a better sense of how we are to love ourselves and then to love our neighbors in you. I pray that in the coming days, by your spirit, we would meditate, we would chew on these things, work them through, and by your grace, put them into practice. I thank you that we can meet together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please and we'll sing the doxology together.